Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We are taping at our usual time this week on Thursday, August 16th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news can happen fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Margot Sanger-Katz in the New York Times. Hello. Alice Olstein of Talking Points Memo. Good morning. And Kimberly Leonard of the Washington Examiner. Hi. So we are getting closer to our special Ask Us Anything episode coming up in two weeks. We've Please already ask really nerdy questions. Yeah, that's right. We have already gotten some good questions in there, kind of nerdy. Uh, but we can always use more. Is there some health policy quirk you've always wondered about? Something complicated you want explained? Send us your questions. We are at what the health, all one word, at kff.org. Maybe we will use your question in our special podcast. In the meantime, we've got news. It's August, but we still have news, uh, mostly of the judicial variety. So remember the Affordable Care Act lawsuit we first started talking about last winter, the one where 18 Republican attorneys general and two governors charged that the entire Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional because Congress eliminated the tax penalty for not having uh, insurance. And that's the one that the Trump administration decided not to fully defend, even though it's the defendant in the case. Uh, And so defending Obamacare will fall to another group of Democratic attorneys general. Yeah, that lawsuit. It now has a hearing date for oral arguments, September 10th in Fort Worth, Texas. That is probably not what Republicans wanted less than two months before Election Day, is it? No, I think arguing against uh, preserving protections for pre-existing conditions right before a major election is not a great look for Republicans. It's, It's happening in Texas, though. That's true. That's true. But I think that uh, Democratic candidates across the country are going to make hay out of it. I think it really cuts both ways because this is essentially a lawsuit to repeal Obamacare, which, you know, is a talking point that Republicans have made, have been elected on, have run on and uh, had a lot of solidarity from their voters about for many cycles. I do think Alice is right that this one feels different. I did a story recently sort of looking at how uh, Democrats and Republicans were talking about this issue. And it feels almost like everyone has flipped the script from past years. So you have Democrats just hammering health care over and over again and particularly particularly about pre-existing conditions. And I think for the people advising Democrats and for Democratic candidates who think this issue is a winner, they think this lawsuit is a gift because it really kind of puts in sharp focus where they are relative to where the president is, at least. But I also think, you know, Obamacare repeal is a core belief of a lot of Republican politicians and a lot of Republican voters. And so I think how this is going to play is probably going to be a little bit locally specific. And I I think that a, a tough thing, and we don't know if the average voter is going to pick up on this sort of subtlety, but the Republican states filing the lawsuit are trying to scrap the Affordable Care Act completely. The administration is arguing just to get rid of protections for pre-existing conditions because and, they say and that a few that's, other things. That yes. that's inextricably linked to, right. the, to the disappearance of the penalty. Right. I and mean, they so, have a legal argument for exactly. it. It just doesn't look great. No. And so it, they're just going after like the most popular part of the Affordable Care Act that people can grasp and care about. And there are two competitive Senate races with Democratic incumbents 
where their opponents are attorneys general who are on this lawsuit. So both Missouri and West Virginia, the Republican candidates are very much going to be identified and associated with this lawsuit. And so I do think for the Democrats running in those races, Claire McCaskill and Joe Manchin, uh, they are excited to have right. and, this and, and, in the two, foreground. Two really endangered Democrats. I mean, two of the most endangered Democrats this year who are running against Republican attorneys general who are part of this lawsuit. Yeah. And one more thing. This is also going to play a lot in the narrative uh, regarding the confirmation of Judge Kavanaugh because um, Democrats are beginning to say, look, the main issues that you need to look at when you look at whether to confirm him are uh, protections for pre-existing conditions and the Affordable Care Act and abortion rights. And with this kind of being front and center during this time, they can really be amplifying their attacks um, against confirming him. And he only has a very small majority to meet, and it's still not clear whether he's going to be able to do that. Yeah, I hadn't actually even thought of that. I, I, and I was sort of interested in, in Margot's point. I was thinking that, too, that, you know, on the one hand, when you look at it, it's not a great look for Republicans in, you know, two months before an election to be saying, yeah, we want to take away your health care. But for Republican voters, and, you know, there's a concern about getting them up and motivated to, to vote, it, that this is a core piece of, I mean, I think that's why the attorneys general filed the lawsuit in the first place to try and sort of activate the Republican base. I mean, the country is still pretty divided. So you, you never know how it's But gonna... it's interesting. Things move through the courts so slowly. You said how long ago this lawsuit was filed. And as Margo pointed out, the politics of um, Obamacare repeal have changed dramatically since then. And so they're they're in a sort of tough position where maybe this would have been a very popular look uh, a year or a year and a half ago, but less so today. And we may or may not get a decision from the judge before. I mean, these are the oral arguments. It's it's not like a jury trial where, you know, it goes to it. We, we get a decision right afterwards. We get a decision usually some 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 weeks or sometimes months afterwards. My sense is that this judge is likely to be sympathetic to the attorneys general. I mean, you never know. They the judge pretty much they, chose him. They, but they did pick this venue. And I think this is a judge who is very conservative and who is expected to be sympathetic to their arguments, whether he rules before the election. Obviously, we don't know. But. Yeah. True. All right. Well, also in kind of an interesting twist, there's a lawsuit filed earlier this month aimed at protecting rather than striking down the ACA. I don't think we've seen very many of those. The cities of Baltimore, Columbus and Cincinnati, Ohio, Chicago and Charlottesville, Virginia filed suit charging that the Trump administration's intentional undermining of the ACA will mean more of a financial burden on city services and city taxpayers. Lawyers working on the case say Trump is constitutionally obligated to, quote, take care that laws passed by Congress are faithfully executed and that that's not what's happening. It's hard to imagine a court wanting to weigh in on what constitutes faithful execution of the laws that's generally left to, uh, you know, the, the discretion of the administration. But I presume this has some PR value, yes? Yes. And I mean, I think it's I, it caught my eye that, like so many lawsuits against the administration that we've seen over the past couple of years, um, they're using the president's own words against him and the words of the leaders of HHS and the comments they've made about the, their attitude toward the Affordable Care Act. That basically, it, it's gone away. Yes, it's gone away and we want it to go away and we want to gut it and we want it to implode or collapse or, you know, pick pick your quote, um, and just putting that right in the lawsuit as evidence of a, a lack of being willing to faithfully execute as as that part of the Constitution demands. I think whether this lawsuit has any legs in the court, I think is actually really hard to know. It seems sort of unlikely for the reasons that you guys identified. And there's 
very little court record on this particular part of the Constitution. People don't usually bring lawsuits um, on the take care clause. So, Although administrations don't normally go after laws that have been passed. (laughs) So just setting that aside, but I was going to say what I think this lawsuit does is highlight the kind of weirdness of this moment. And, you know, I think especially the weirdness of the kind of first year of the Trump administration, where you had administration officials whose job it was to administer these programs that were uh, laid out by Congress that had been specified in regulations by previous administrations. And you really did see them taking active steps to sort of denigrate the law that they were supposed to be overseeing. You know, we saw, especially when Tom Price was the secretary of HHS, you know, they were using their social media feeds. He was making public pronouncements. There was just a lot of, you know, Obamacare is terrible. These programs are terrible. Um, And it's weird. And I think that what this lawsuit really did for me was just remind me how weird it is, you know, that there are lots of examples in American history of presidents who had the job of executing laws that they would not have chosen to write or sign themselves. But the way that the Trump administration, particularly early on, approached Obamacare does feel kind of unique. And, And then again, this was just felt like a reminder of that. And what I also thought was unique was um, trying to, I mean, they don't put a specific dollar value, but essentially trying to put a dollar value on the sabotage of the Affordable Care Act and saying that, you know, this is directly impacting our city's budget because more people are uninsured, more people are, you know, needing to go to the emergency room for basic care and not paying for it. And the the city has to pick up that bill. Um, these free clinics that we fund are overburdened now. And so I think taking the Affordable Care Act sabotage out of the sort of political battle realm and putting it in the concrete, this is impacting our city. The public health realm, basically. Yes, exactly, um, is is interesting. And that, I think, could work on both a legal level and a PR level. Yeah, and that does seem to be more persuasive than, for example, doing it at a national level where you've seen so many articles in recent weeks say, you know, Obamacare has proven to be a lot more resilient than we all expected. So even though the Trump administration has um, put forward certain actions that were framed as sabotage, um, you know, in certain cases, people have been able to obtain less expensive health insurance. Um, The enrollment in the exchanges hasn't really changed that much. Um, Yes, you have people priced out, but they could say, well, we made provisions for them. They might not be like Obama. Care, but what options do we have? And so, you know, having having a more local level argument about that looks at at the data as as Alice was talking about, um, I could see that as being more persuasive from that from that end. And I, of course, have stopped making predictions about uh, lawsuits being, you know, unlikely after King v. Burwell, which was basically <laughs> a, a lawsuit that went to the Supreme Court over a typo, effectively, <laughs> in the Affordable Care Act. Um, so you never know what courts are going to sort of pick up and run with, but this will be sort of interesting to watch if it if it gets some legs and probably you know although i imagine that it's that they've done it more for its talking points than for its uh, likely legal outcome all right finally on the judicial front this week the same health groups that have so far successfully challenged kentucky's medicaid work requirement in court have filed suit to challenge arkansas's work requirement arkansas's requirement as we have talked about unlike kentucky's has already taken effect thousands of people are now at risk of losing their coverage because they have failed to report their work hours online. That is a requirement. Alice, you have written about this. Refresh us on what's happening in Arkansas. 
Yes. So they are the only state to actually put a work requirement into effect. Uh, HHS has approved four. Kentucky was going to put it into effect before a court said not so fast and sent it back to HHS for reconsideration. Um, and two other states have yet to implement. So this is the proving ground. This is ground zero for this battle. And what we're seeing is that the vast majority of people who don't get an exemption and have to file their work hours are have been unable um, or just have failed to do so and are on the brink of losing their health insurance. Also, unlike Kentucky, um, Arkansas is phasing in uh, this rule. And so right now it only applies to people between 30 and 49 years old, but it'll eventually apply to anybody over 18 and under Medicare age. Um, so uh, more and more people are going to be affected. So the fact that so many people can't or haven't been able to it, It's some giant percentage yes, that has not it's reported. It's over 80, yeah. yes. Um, uh, it's a sign that this is going to knock even more people off uh, over time, which is why the groups suing say more plaintiffs could join in the future as more of these age groups are are fall under the requirement and those people get standing in the lawsuit. Um, Also, unlike Kentucky, as we've talked about uh, here on the podcast, Arkansas is requiring everyone to file their hours online only. They can't go in person. They can't do it by mail. They can't do it by phone. Arkansas, at the same time, has the second worst rate of home internet access in the country. It's a state where a lot of people live in rural areas who don't have access to the internet. And so this is very burdensome for them. Um, And that could be playing into why so many people are now at risk of losing Medicaid. Maybe they are working. Maybe they are working even enough hours per month. And still, because of these uh, hoops they have to jump through, they could lose their coverage. Yeah. And Architect was saying that that they they want people to file online because sort of being computer literate will make them more employable. That was pretty much the argument. They they said (laughs) that after saying what is probably the more honest reason is that it's just cheaper for the state. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like the arguments about the Kentucky work requirements, so Kentucky was the first one approved. It was not, as Alice said, has not yet been implemented, felt sort of theoretical, right? Like these things might happen. The state has not adequately planned for these things. We don't know exactly what the outcomes were. And, you know, all of us were rushing around and looking at the social science and the research on other places where administrative burdens are imposed on public welfare programs, what happened when... Uh, TANF went into effect and had work requirements. But Arkansas is actually happening. I mean, this is sort of like the real experience of a work requirement in Medicaid. And I do think that these very high numbers of people who are failing to report, um, it just, to me, I think it potentially changes the argument about this. It's not theoretical anymore. It's real. People, yeah, uh, we don't have to worry about whether these people have standing. They, I mean, they will be cut off of mm-hmm. their Medicaid, and I think it's next month, right? Yes, yes. So, um, so it's June, July, August, they, the state also has a, what seems to be sort of the harshest setup of the states that have been approved so far, which is if you don't meet the requirement for three months in a row, you are locked out for the entire rest of the year, and other states don't have that sort of punitive lockout setup. I just think that it's going to be a different kind of discussion in front of the judge. And we, you know, we know obviously that a judge in the Kentucky case uh, felt that this was a problem, that the state needed to do more things to demonstrate that, and the and the CMS as well, to demonstrate that this was appropriate under the Medicaid statute. But I'm very interested to hear the arguments in this case and how closely they track Kentucky and how much the kind of relevance of this real life information plays. Actually, I didn't notice. Did they file here in, in 
yeah, DC, DC court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and the the legal arguments are extremely similar to the Kentucky legal arguments. Again, we have the take care clause that they're not taking care to faithfully execute um, uh, Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act. We also have Administrative Procedure Act violations where um, when Sima Verma sent out this letter to all the states saying go for it with work requirements. Um, that letter was not published in the Federal Register and open for comment right. and the, the, all the, the things administ- they were supposed to do. <laughs> the Administrative Procedure Act is what governs how federal agencies do regulations yes. and change policies. Yeah. So, And there are lots of lots of people who are really yep. expert in the APA, which is good to know because it's really arcane. <laughs> Coming up a lot recently. It might be worth noting that you know, since the judge ruled in Kentucky, the administration has taken certain actions to try to address the concerns about these procedural matters. So one thing that they did is they actually reopened the comment period on the Kentucky waiver. So they had a comment period, but the judge said they didn't uh, take into account the comments enough. So they're kind of like, I guess they're going to try to have a do-over on that. Um, And they also have been doing other things to sort of bolster the record in favor of their interpretation of the effects of work requirements. And one thing that they did was the Council on Economic Advisors put out a big white paper about work requirements in a broad array of kind of income-based social safety net programs looking at who are the populations who might qualify and what are the reasons why it might be beneficial to have work requirements. So you get the sense that they're trying to work a little harder to bolster the case for why um, a work requirement might be in keeping with the goals of these programs. I don't know whether the judge will be more persuaded of that. But, you know, as we as we get to the next round of legal proceedings, there will be more kind of evidence in the record. And and in Kentucky, it wasn't just work requirements that were struck down. It was the entire waiver, um, including premiums and other modifications and, and cuts and restrictions on Basically, Medicaid. I mean, in Kentucky, it was much more about Kentucky saving, as a state, saving money. Yes. Um, Although they, they haven't. It's, it, <laughs> it costs a lot of money, actually. But that was, that was their argument. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, moving on, uh, while we're still talking about Medicaid, something happened earlier this month that we didn't get to talk about yet. Margo, according to your colleague Robert Pear, the Trump administration has signaled that it likely would not be approving state requests for what is called partial Medicaid expansion, meaning expanding Medicaid to some very poor people, but not to all the people who would be eligible under the original terms of the Affordable Care Act. Why would states even want to partly expand Medicaid? So there's this weird overlap in the Affordable Care Act. So what the Affordable Care Act said when it was first passed was everyone under 133 percent of the federal poverty limit gets Medicaid. And everyone over between 100 percent of the federal poverty limit and 400 percent who are not in Medicaid are eligible for subsidies to help them buy private insurance in the insurance marketplaces. So there's this category of people between 100 and 133 who are te- would technically be eligible for subsidies if there was no Medicaid expansion, but are not eligible for subsidies and are instead in the Medicaid expansion if there is expansion. So, And that's what we talk about when we talk about the Medicaid gap. These are people who are poor, but they don't make, they can't get subsidies on the exchange because they don't make 100 percent of the poverty line. 
So I, I, my understanding is that the reason why there was this overlap was to make provisions for um, certain immigrants and other people who wouldn't be eligible for Medicaid but who might want to um, use the private market. So anyway, it's this weird part of the policy design. But the crucial thing to understand is that Medicaid is a program where the costs are split between the federal government and the states. For the Medicaid expansion population, most of that cost is borne by the federal government in perpetuity. At most, states are going to have to pay 10% on the dollar for the medical care for those people. And right now, it's like 8.5% or something. It, it's phasing up. It's it started phasing at 100, up. It started at 100% federal, and it is slowly phasing to, to 90% federal. But states do not have to offer dollar one of subsidies for people on the exchanges. That is entirely a federal obligation. And so if you are a state and you want all these people to be covered, but you would like to get as many of them off your books as possible, what you would really like to do is to cover people under Medicaid right up to 100%, right up to the poverty line, and then say, people who are over the poverty line, you can still get insurance. Go to the exchange. You're going to get a cost-sharing reduction. You're going to get a pretty fat subsidy. You'll have to pay some kind of premium. But the federal government can pay your medical bills. And there and has... that's right. Yeah, and those people also, as we've talked about many times, get help with their out-of-pocket costs if you're up to 250%. So even though even though President Trump took away the payments to insurers, the insurers are still required to give those discounts. States are, you know, would really prefer to go a little bit lower than 133 because it just it lowers their overall exposure to the costs of the Medicaid expansion. The I'm sorry, the Obama administration's perspective is that this is absolutely disallowed by the language of the statute. And even though I think maybe they would have liked to do these kinds of partial expansions as a way to get more states in to kind of negotiate with them and say, OK, like, come in, we'll like cut you this little break. Their legal interpretation was this is just not possible. And they drew a pretty hard line on that. It sounds like in the Trump administration, there is more debate about whether or not it would be appropriate. And so far, it looks like they are saying no partial expansions, at least until after the election. But part of what Robert's Robert's story revealed that I thought was really interesting is that not everyone is on the same page about this inside the administration, that there is a kind of active and vigorous debate. And there are influential and smart people on both sides of this issue. So we'll have to see how it plays out. But I, I guess the big question is, you know, yes, partial expansion might get some of the, what are we up, 19 states that haven't expanded, get some of those in. Um, but the bigger question is, would it prompt some of the states that have opted in oh, to yeah. then opt, oh, yeah. opt if you down? Are a state, if you're a state and this option is available to you, it is basically irrational for you to use Medicaid to cover these people. And we have already seen among the states that have asked the Trump administration to allow them to, to do a partial expansion. Uh, Massachusetts uh, is first in line for that policy. And I think they're a really good example of a state that is really committed to the goals of Obamacare. They had their own health insurance expansion that was state and federal funded uh, prior to Obamacare. I mean, these are Massachusetts is not an example of a state that's like trying to undermine the goals of Obamacare. But I think that they feel like this is a way they can achieve the same level of coverage at less cost to the state. And they want to do it. I thought it was interesting. The article sort of pointed out the the political dynamics of all of this, which is the the Trump administration so far is against partial expansion because they don't want anything that expands any part of Obamacare. Right. In, they, they in don't any want. Way. They don't want to bring in yes. some of those nineteen yes. states. Um, however, their refusal to um, par- grant partial expansions um, only throws logs on the fire of full expansion efforts. Um, 
via ballot initiative and, and other and through the legislatures and other ways. That's um, right. And there's what three states I think that have, yeah. that have that were that three very red states that have uh, Medicaid expansion on their ballot. So well. it's it's kind it if if their goal is no more expansion, no more Medicaid for um, for more people, um, that could backfire. All right. Well, I'm going to do my extra credit here because I want us all to talk about it. And actually, it's by Kimberly for the Washington Examiner. It is called Hospitals Present a Major Roadblock to Medicare for All. And it's about exactly what that says, that hospitals in particular are kind of freaked out by the idea of a fully government financed health system, particularly one that would pay the Medicare rates, which are okay, but lower than most private rates. Um, Kimberly, why did you write this story now? (laughs) Well, I wrote it um, because there has been such a big dialogue in the Democratic Party about what the next step is to take on health care expansion. And you have more Democrats than ever who are supporting Medicare for all. Um, And I noticed during a lot of the public speeches and appearances that Democrats are very comfortable saying, you know, our plan is going to take on insurance companies and drug companies. They never mention hospitals, but hospitals are very much against this, I found out when I uh, checked in with them. Um, They're not opposed to universal health care. They're actually very much in favor of Yes, because they get paid. That's right. Right, right. They would like everybody to have insurance so they can get paid. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Um, But they want them to have insurance that will pay them the rates that um, can allow them to continue to uh, operate the way that they've been operating or even at a larger scale. And so what was interesting was, as I really started to dive into what has happened to single payer proposals at the state level, is that hospitals have actually paired up with insurance companies and with um, pharmaceutical companies and um, other healthcare stakeholders to kind of create patient groups, advocacy groups. And then they run really heavy ads. They help, they go out and inform the public and they, they really urge people to kind of push back against uh, possibly going towards single payer. And that's, and they have, so they haven't done it alone, but they've worked with other uh, groups to kind of push back on this. And they're going to be a powerful adversary um, if this becomes a big part of the narrative um, and a big part of where Democrats decide to go. Uh, Furthermore, um, for Democrats who haven't gone toward single payer, but instead are looking at the public option, which is pretty much where you see the Senate divided right now, Medicare for all and um, public option. Public option is not something hospitals want either um, because they believe that then it'll just cause more people to go on to the public option that has been Basically created many versus, more people with Medicare. Right. Versus or being many on more private. people with Medicare rates being yes. paid to hospitals. Yes. Versus being on private insurance. So their argument is, look, if we if we are to go in this direction, you'll see long lines for care. You'll see layoffs. You'll see hospital closures, et cetera. So um, as we know, there has been more favorability toward the idea of single payer, although the public seems a little confused as to what necessarily that means. Um, so the question is, who is the only payer of health care? Is it the state government? Is it the federal government? That's what we're looking at. And so the conversation appears malleable. And we'll probably see hospitals continue to pair up with other groups to um, oppose this message and instead try to offer some other kind of alternative. But it's really interesting because you have Republicans looking to repeal the ACA, which is not something healthcare groups want. And then you have Democrats looking toward single payer public option. And that's something health stakeholders don't want either. So I think a lot of advocates of single payer um, have this somewhat, to me, frustrating argument where they say, well, if you like look at 
Canada or England or other places that have single payer, their healthcare system costs such as you know costs a fraction of what ours costs. And so, if we just have single payer, then healthcare will be not just universal but also cheaper. And I just think we have to remember over and over again that the reason why those healthcare systems are cheaper is because they pay less money to all of the people that provide healthcare. So you know, doctors make less money in England than they do in the United States. Hospitals are paid less, and they're like a little bit less cushy. You know, pharmaceutical companies are paid less. All of the medical device makers are paid less. All of the players in the healthcare industry are either going to have to take a haircut so that the single-payer system a, a serious haircut in would many be cases. cheaper yeah. than the system it replaces, especially if you consider they also got to take account of all the people who are currently uninsured who would have to be covered. Or we could theoretically have a kind of single-payer system that's just as expensive as the one that we have right now, but it's just paid for through tax dollars instead of through private a combination of private and tax dollars. And, you know, Democrats really love to go after the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry because they are politically unpopular. Uh, but really, the bulk of our healthcare dollars are spent with doctors and hospitals. And I think, as as Kim points out, they those are much more sympathetic uh, adversaries. And hospitals, as as you point out in the story, you know, every member of Congress has a hospital in their district. It's usually, in many cases, the largest or one of the largest employers. Hospitals have a lot of political clout for real reason. I mean, people, a lot of people work for hospitals. I, this story resonated with me because I was up in Boston earlier this year and got an earful from uh, some of the teaching, the Boston teaching hospital people about just this. And and these were, these were a lot of the people who worked to pass the Affordable Care Act. If you ask hospitals to accept a lot less money than they get right now, I think it's important to be honest about the fact that that is not going to be borne or, or absorbed by cutting the CEO's uh, salaries, right? I mean, the kinds of dollars that would need to be wrung out of the hospital system in order for a single-payer system to pay less for medical care, uh, that is going to include things like nurses' salaries, you know, middle-class employees of these institutions are probably going to have to make less money because the money's going to have to be squeezed out everywhere. Which which is, you know, which everybody agrees would be a good thing. The question is, how do you do it? I was talking to, to a bunch of, of young journalists earlier this week, and I had recommended to them, and I should probably put it in the extra credits, a story from 2009 from Atul Gawande in The New Yorker talking about how this was pre-ACA, but talking about how every other country basically built on what they had. What you end up with is, is but nobody, you know, with the, the possible exception, I think, of Taiwan, which really sort of just came up with a, an entirely new system out of whole cloth. Most other sort of major industrialized countries have developed from what was already in place. And it's, it's entirely, I mean, that's what tried to do with the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, even going beyond that, the likelihood is because of the the dislocation, you'll have to sort of do this in some kind of step. So we can't just flick a switch and say, let's put everybody on Medicare. But I, I also think even if you embrace the approach of many Republicans who are looking for market-based solutions to our high health care costs. So, you know, the typical line from Republicans is like, instead of having the government come in and universally say, like, you guys are all going to take a pay cut uh, as part of a single payer program, they say, like, let's have insurance companies, you know, go out there and negotiate with hospitals and vigorously compete with one another for customers. And the market is going to bring down prices. That also, if it works, uh, means that hospitals are going to have to take a haircut. <laughs> and so the thing we have to remember is the reason why our healthcare system is so expensive is mostly because our healthcare system is really expensive. Democrats who've been um, touting the Medicare for all uh, strategy have pointed to a recent study that shows um, that a single payer system would save the U.S. money ultimately, um, that it would reduce healthcare spending. But 
it's saving money can just as easily be cast as cutting money. And so uh, the question is then when it comes to public opinion about this, you know, how which which side is won over? Every dollar in the health care system is somebody's salary. Exactly. Uh, all right. Well, one more small piece of news um, and a reminder that the Senate is still here, even though the House has gone out for its usual annual August break. On Tuesday, President Trump signed the Animal Drug and Animal Generic User Fee Amendments of 2018. This is basically the parallel law to the one that encourages the speedy approval of generics for human drugs. It's aimed largely at farm animals. That's how it originally passed. But it has provided uh, it has proved important for pet owners, too, including some at this table. Inclu- um, so I thought it was worth mentioning that while Congress fights over a lot of stuff, there's also important stuff that passes without a fight because pretty much everybody thinks it's a good idea and that stuff like rarely gets noticed. But Kimberly, you wrote about this. Yeah, yeah. And I had been actually following this bill. I was probably one of the few who had done so. But uh, there was a little battle kind of brewing underneath the surface over whether to attach um, antibiotic legislation to it. Um, There are um, advocates who are really pushing for, you know, lower use of antibiotics in our meat supply just because of all the superbugs that have developed as a result. Um, but ultimately, the bill did receive a lot of support. Um, it passed easily in the Senate and the House, and uh, the president signed it into law. And uh, what it'll do will um, allow you know the programs to continue um, in terms of re- reviewing the different medicines that uh, drug companies apply for and um, allowing them to go through quickly. So that's something that has to be approved every five years. And uh, they made it in time for the deadline this year. And so... Um, pretty much as everything went as it was supposed to go. Congress can't can't do the big stuff, but at least they're proving that they can do some of the little stuff. Um, all right, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org. I have already done mine. Um, Margo, you want to go next? Sure. I I wanted to draw attention to a study out from some researchers at the Kaiser Family Foundation that was published as part of the Peterson-Kaiser Health System Tracker. Um, And it's called An Analysis of -of Out-of-Network Claims in Large Employer Health Plans. And uh, sorry for the long, slightly boring title. It's a Uh, study. (laughs) It's a study, but I think it's an important study. Uh, because it is the, now the third study that I'm aware of that uses really good data to find that about one in five patients who goes to a hospital ends up with an out-of-network bill from a provider. And, you know, I have written a lot about this in the emergency room context. And this study, like uh, the two previous ones, one from the Federal Trade Commission researchers and one from uh, some researchers at Yale University, um, all find that this is the, that is the primary place where it happens. You know, you you go to the hospital; it's in your insurance network. You think everything is going to be covered, and it turns out that the doctor is not in your network, and you get hit with a big bill. I think this is a huge problem in our healthcare system, uh, and it sort of reveals, I think, certain kinds of breakdowns in the normal markets for how providers and insurance companies negotiate for prices. But it's I think it's a really really important consumer issue, and this paper documents the prevalence of this, but what it doesn't show is the distribution. The Yale research is the first that I've seen that really looked at it. And at least in the emergency room context, it's important to realize that even though one in five patients have this experience, those are not randomly spread out, that actually it's a very small minority of hospitals where this happens, and it happens all the time in those hospitals. And then there's a very large majority of hospitals 
where it never happens. And so I think that for policymakers, that is somewhat heartening. It's not this is not something that's just kind of sprinkled throughout our healthcare system. It's something that seems to be happening by a small group of providers who are trying to exploit weaknesses in the system. And Marta, and it could you've potentially done some, be resolved. Yeah, you've done some really good work on on that. It's, emergency it's hard. Bill. I don't. I don't want to make it seem like the policy solutions are simple because. Uh, you know, however you fix it, it can kind of hammer one side or the other and distort the negotiating in another way. But I think that it is actually it's an important problem for consumers, but it's actually a, a narrow problem for policymakers potentially. Kimberly. Mine is from Stateline by Christine Vestal, and it's called For Addicted Women, The Year After Childbirth is the Deadliest. Um, I chose this story because I know that there have been a lot of calls for um better care for for women after childbirth, um, not just uh, who've struggled with um, opioid addiction, but um, maternal mortality in general has been showing a a very concerning upward trend. And it may be it may be because of this crisis, but at least um, in part precisely. And uh, these are areas in which we don't have a lot of data uh, for for women who after childbirth and then also for um, infants who are born with neonatal abstinence syndrome, there are still a lot of hospitals that don't have kind of protocol in place for how to care for these babies. And um, a lot of it involves making sure that you're caring for moms at the same time and making sure that they're together in a quiet space and things like that. Um, So that's an issue that I've been following uh, very carefully, and the story does a great job of laying it out. I also chose an opioid-related story. Obviously, it's a huge issue in this country, um, affecting so many people. So this is in uh, Stat News, and it's called Tapered to Zero. In a radical move, Oregon's Medicaid program weighs cutting off chronic pain patients from opioids. It's about... Just just what it said, um, Oregon is considering getting rid of those on Medicaid with chronic pain's ability to get a prescription for opioids, even for people who don't show any sign of addiction. Um, and for people suffering with chronic pain issues, they are protesting this and saying that this is terrible. This will lead people to get desperate and seek um, self-medication through other means, much more addictive illegal drugs. Um, and there's also uh, evidence that um, cutting off people's um, prescription drugs can lead to suicide. And the task force that's weighing this policy change is pushing for uh, pushing um, for the promotion of things like acupuncture and chiropractors to treat chronic pain. And they're on the task force itself are acupuncturists and chiropractors. Um, so there's definitely a conflict of interest there. And there is not great data on, on those alternative um, treatments for people with chronic pain um, being effective. And so folks who are struggling uh, in Oregon have mobilized to, to protest this. All right. Well, a a lot of uh, of food for thought for this week. Um, That is it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments. We're at whatthehealth at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rodner. At Alice Olstein. At Leonard KL. At Sanger Katz. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.